0: If you got your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 115. Let me say this, welcome to the uh, OBU football team. I see you guys spread out all throughout here. We're glad that you guys are with us this morning in worship, and uh, we look forward to a great season ahead of us. We're thankful to be able to feed you lunch afterwards too, so thanks thanks for being here with us today. Listen, you saw at the end of that uh, video, a clip of what's been happening in the life of our church. You also heard from people in our church that have been out on mission, and I think it's uh, important that we give God glory and praise for the work he's doing through our people as they've been out on mission. You've heard Italy, Miami, and OKC. Next week's videos, you'll hear about the other mission teams and what's happening there. And then all those gospel conversations and 21 baptisms in the month of July, listen, God's just doing a remarkable work, and I'll I'll share this with you from the end of uh, from the fall of 2021 through last fall of 2022. So one year, uh, IBC. That was the end of Todd being the pastor here, and through the interim time, uh, there was uh, God was doing a remarkable work. There were over 50 baptisms that year alone, and uh, and the and the previous 12 months. We're on pace to, to, to move beyond that as far as baptisms. And listen, we, I share that with you because baptisms are visual pictures of life change that Jesus is doing in the hearts of people. And listen, I want to see this baptistry full every week because that means people are, are trusting Christ as Savior and being obedient to what's happening. And so we want to give praise and glory for what God's been doing in, in the life of IBC in the last two and a half years. It's been remarkable what he's doing, and we only look forward to what he's doing uh, in the future. It brings us to a fitting title of the first message of this sermon series titled Same Mission, New Vision, and as you know, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we have a long-range planning team that's helped us revisit what is the mission of our church, what, what, what's the vision of what we want to accomplish, and they came up with a statement, we glorify God as followers of Jesus who help others follow him. And so uh, this, this week and next week, we're going to talk about those two, those two that sentence in two weeks. The first is today we're going to focus on glorifying God. Next week, we'll talk about helping others. And, so, and then after that, we'll go into the vision statement and talk about five weeks uh, related to the vision statement. So it's a seven-week series. If you're with us, you're here at the beginning, and you'll continue to see it build upon each other each week. The reason why I share this important message today is because, listen, we all come in here... And we're all pretty good at something. And sometimes that something can identify, we can identify that as that's who we are in life. We might be a good husband or a good son or daughter. We might be a talented athlete. We might be excellent in our business and career trade. We might be the best plumber, a good guy who can do remodel and work with his hands. Whatever it is, you can work with your car and your identity gets wrapped up in those things. But what I hope to present to you today is what you are really created for, and that is to glorify God. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question is asked, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, it is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, this message is not a direct quote from Scripture. That answer is not a direct quote from Scripture. I wish it was because then that means today I would just have to preach one passage of Scripture. But honestly, church, you're in for a Bible journey today as we're going to look at a lot of different texts. they will be on the screen for you, but you're welcome to follow along in your Bible. And the reason why we're going to use so much Scripture today is because God's Word, in God's Word is rooted this idea that we were created to bring glory to God. And so as we as a church, if we're going to glorify God as followers of Jesus, that means we have to do it individually, and we have to do it collectively as a whole. And so this morning, we're going to examine a number of scriptures that will help us understand that we were created to glorify God, and we glorify him by our faith, in our worship, and through our lives. Let's read Psalm 115, verse 1. I share that with you because I'm going to refer to this about three or four times in the message today today. And let's read it together. It says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Again, I'm going to read that one more time. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I believe if we understand that we are to glorify God as followers of Jesus, we have to start with creation, which takes us to point number one, that we were created to glorify God. And in the creation story, I'll read Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and it says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. Every person in this room and every person throughout history was created by God to be an image bearer of God. Each individual person is, is by themselves an image bearer of God. And we hold in common the same unique God-given status as, as image bearers. No matter who we are, where we come from, what we do, we all, we all have the same God, unique God-given thing in that you are an image bearer of God. Now listen, in the creation account, though it's important to understand, this is significant about who God is. The, the Trinity, the God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it existed before the universe did. And that's important because... That shows us that God is complete. He was was sufficient in Himself. And this is important because it, it, it tells us something. God didn't need to create man and woman to complete Himself. God didn't need to create man and woman to fulfill Himself. That was already done in who He is. But by His grace, He created man and woman to be image bearers to the world so that they could know who God is and what he's like. And by God's grace, he created us in divine image, the crown of his creation. So we were created to glorify God. We were created in his image. The second, we were created by his will. Now we're going to go all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, when it says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God created based solely on his will. The idea of creation existed in God's mind before he started creating. And his power is on display when he created the world and his power is still on display in how he sustains the world. So when these 24 elders find themselves here in Revelation chapter 4 in this vision that God is giving John, these elders are bowing down and they're declaring, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because he created all things and by his will they existed and were created listen in our world today we we might say that it it seems really hard to find god as maybe it was back you know back in the day i mean there's a lot of evil there's a lot of brokenness there's a lot of sadness there's a lot of despair but here's what we know about god he created the world and he sustains it and he's promised to one day make it right and we understand this because this is who God is. He created us to be image bearers. By his will, he put us into play, which takes us to the third thing, that we were created for his glory. And Isaiah 43, 7 should be on the screen. It says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, I wanna, before I dive into this part of this message of this point, I want to say this. When God created the world, he created it perfect. Adam and Eve, him, living in the garden together, enjoying life, walking among each other. And then Adam had to go, Adam and Eve had to go off and trust themselves, right, and give in to their selfish desires and sin into the garden. And when sin entered the garden, God separated himself from man, kicked them out of the garden. That's what sin does. And so we live in a fallen world where there's brokenness and evil that abounds, but God did not abandon his original design in the way that he created us to be his image bearers. He gave us an opportunity to be redeemed. And so Isaiah 43, there's a strong encouragement in the first seven verses of Isaiah 43. And this, earth, this encouragement is anchored in the truth of both creation and redemption. And so God is calling people from the ends of the earth, everywhere... All over the world. He's calling them by name into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. He's redeeming people. And so God created us in his image, by his will, and for his glory. And so as he gives Jesus Christ to remedy our sin problem, we can take on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and therefore give him glory by the way that we live our life see, God's glory is bound up in the final security of those whom he chooses to be his people, which takes us to our second point, that we glorify God by our faith. Listen, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, it glorifies God. Why? Because when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're resting in who God is, what he's done in the past, what he's doing in your life personal, per- presently, what he can do in the future, and what he will do in the future. You're resting in that. You're resting in who he is. And you bring glory and honor when you place your faith and trust in him. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, it glorifies God. Why? Because it points to God, not man. Aren't you thankful that we don't have to keep a tally of all of our good works And all the good things that we do in a notebook so that when our life on earth is over here and we stand before God, we we have to hand him this journal after journal after journal of all these good works to show that we're worthy of getting into heaven. Now when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, I'm thankful that God sent Jesus to take on human flesh to live a life that I couldn't live to die the death that I should have died so that I might place my faith and trust in him and I might be adopted into righteousness and adopted into his family based upon his work, not mine. And so when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, it glorifies God because you're pointing to a God who has the ability to save you. It also, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, it's because we glorify God because he's faithful and trustworthy. Listen, God had every ride in the garden back at creation to kick them out of the garden and be done with humanity. But God want, had a plan in place to redeem humanity to himself. And it comes in the person of Jesus. And listen, one of the reasons why we gather and sing is because of God's faithfulness and trustworthiness that he's carried his plan of redemption up until this point and he will bring it to fruition when it's over. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus, it glorifies God because we take him at his word. One of the greatest examples of this, Paul points out, is Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Paul quotes Genesis fifteen six when it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This promise was that what Abraham received, that the descendants that he would have would be as numerous as the stars in heaven. That's the promise. And Abraham believed God. He believed in this promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But toward the end of the chapter, Paul returns to this incident and reflects on the fact that Abraham was almost 100 years old, his wife Sarah was barren, and he had every earthly reason to think that God's promise was outrageous. Yet, as the text tells us in verse 14, chapter 4, verse 19 through 20, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Abraham gave glory to God precisely through his belief in God. That act of faith brought glory to the Lord. From a human perspective, there's no hope that a 100-year-old man could have a child. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. And if, if we're to have this honest conversation, you agree with that too. There's no way that a 100-year-old man is going to have a child. And his wife is barren. She can't have kids. It just seems, it just seems impossible for this to happen. Yet we know this. Faith acknowledges that there is one who is not bound by limitations of the created order. That is God. Why? Because with God all things are possible. Today, now more than ever, we glorify God when we insist that God is able to bring to pass anything that is consistent with his nature and in concert with his redemptive purposes. Listen, this is the beauty of placing our faith and trust in God is because when we place our faith in him, we bring glory to him because we, we believe that his word is sufficient, that he himself is sufficient for all that we need in life. Abraham is told this promise, and he believed that God would bring it to fruition even though the circumstances of his life didn't even look like it was going to happen. Notice what Abraham did. He laugh, well, If you know the story, Abraham laughed when he heard the idea that he might have a son in his old age. Well, listen, he believed God even though that sounded crazy. His response teaches something to you and I. God doesn't always expect us to assume his work. But he does want us to glorify him by believing in him no matter how crazy the things he's doing in our life might seem. Abraham's hope did not overlook the reality of his circumstances. But listen to this. His circumstances did not deter his faith. We will trust Jesus with our salvation so that we don't have to spend an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. We'll, 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 we'll put our faith in Jesus there. But in the circumstances of our life, we have a hard time displaying that same faith because it's just not fair. This I don't know why this is happening or why can't I catch the break or why isn't God acting in line with what I want him to do. And we have a hard time placing our faith here. Listen, the, the wholeness of our faith brings glory to God. Why? Because when the circumstances doesn't make sense and they don't, they don't meet our, what we want to happen, God is still at work. And by us declaring our faith in him makes, the, makes everybody else say, man, what is different about them? There is no way, there is no way that somebody could, could still believe in God with what's happening in their life. But this is what God does. This is what brings glory when we, when we walk by faith. And Abraham's faith was strengthened throughout this ordeal, so much so that his faith rose to the occasion he gave God glory. Why? Because God had the power to do what he had promised. Faith is a total surrender to the ability and integrity of God to carry out what he promised. Listen, I don't have all the answers of why these things happen or Every question you can come up with about why you don't want to believe in Jesus. But here's what I can tell you. At some point, faith is going to have to be what drives that decision. We'll never find out all the answers. But what I do know is this, is I know the one in which all the answers are found. And I can put my faith and trust in him, even though my finite human mind may not be able to understand it or grasp it. And Abraham's faith in God was counted as righteousness. Righteousness. And sometimes in our faith, we try to put God inside of a box that we can keep control of. Because we want to understand him so bad, we're like, okay, well, he needs to fit within this cycle. And I would ask this question of you this morning. If God is only given glory when we let him be God, then are you glorifying God by allowing him to be who he is and to do what only he can do? See, when we try to put God inside these boxes so that it makes sense to us, we're limiting in our own personal lives who he is. But listen, we can't can't limit God. When Abraham gave God glory, guess what Abraham wasn't doing? He wasn't filling God's glory cup up. His glory cup is already full. He's glorious in in his nature and who he is. But by Abraham exercising faith, he was displaying to the outside world, this is what it looks like to bring God glory with the life who believes in Jesus. But then there are some of you in this room, you've never repented of your sin and placed your faith and trust in Jesus for your salvation. And listen, by believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, declaring him as Jesus' Lord, putting your faith in Jesus for your eternal future, that right there alone will bring glory to God. And as we believe in Jesus and we display our faith, we ascribe, God, we ascribe to God as glory. So we're created to glorify God. We glorify God uh, by our faith. And the third thing is we glorify God in our worship. David Van Drunen said, "...worship is a distinct activity in which we set aside other tasks and set our minds and hearts fully on the Lord." in order to receive his word and to respond back to him with prayer and song. So he said, worship is a setting aside a time in which your heart and mind are fully focused on the Lord so that you can receive his word and respond through prayer and worship. That, that's what worship is according to how he's laid it out. Now he says that this happens in three areas of our life. Here's the three areas it happens. It happens in private, meaning this, you get alone with the Lord in his presence, a heart and mind fully fixated upon him so that you might receive his word. And in response, you pray and sing. It also happens in our families. And listen, I get it. Every family looks different, but in our families, there needs to be time in which we are gathering together to worship where there's a time designated for our hearts and minds to be set upon the things of God. And as we Give that attention, then he does a work of transformation in us through his word that leads to a response of praying and singing. And then it's the corporate gathering where we're at right now. And listen, when we gather together in this place, we come with an expectation of lifting high the name of Jesus. We come worshiping Jesus. Why? Because he's worthy of it. As the text, as this quote goes on to say. In many biblical texts about worship, there are repeated exhortations to call upon the name of the Lord, to sing to the Lord, to praise the Lord, and other similar practices provide abundant evidence that God takes special delight in this distinct activity of worship. When we declare God's glory in worship, we have the privilege of echoing and joining the angelic song even now anticipating the day when our co-worshippers will be visible to our eyes and together in one great company we will worship the Lamb who was slain. It's the song we just sang right before the sermon, Hymn of Heaven. We will join in with every other believer singing praises to the Lamb who was slain. And so, now, and so we begin now with imperfect hearts and faltering voices to do what we will do forever, give glory to God in worship. Now, I'm probably going to step on some people's toes and make somebody mad. But I cannot envision a heaven with God, a risen Savior, and us doing this. When we stand before Jesus Christ... If you know him as your personal Lord and Savior, you will do what those elders did, and you will fall before the throne, and you will declare, worthy are you. And you won't do it in your timid voice. You'll do it with everything you have in you. Listen, I sound like a dying squirrel when I sing. Ask anybody that sits around me. But I can tell you this. As long as I got breath in my lungs, because what Jesus did in my life on August 24, 1998, when he set me free from my sin and gave me life, I will sing as loud as I can sing. I will raise my hands. I will get on my knees. I'll do whatever it takes to declare that God is worthy of worship, and I want to bring glory to him with my life. And you should, too. When we come into this room, this is the small taste of heaven when we gather in this place and we gather in this room and we sing praises to Jesus and we lift high his name and bring glory to his name. This is a taste of heaven. With our imperfect bodies and our faltering voices, we're joining in the hymn of heaven and we're longing for the day that we stand before Jesus face to face and declare it with our own eyes, worthy are you. And this is why we glorify God in our worship. And we, we do it because of his character. Psalm 29, 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Worship is giving to God, not getting from God. One of the mindsets we can change when we come into this worship gathering in a corporate time or in our private time with the Lord or in our family worship gatherings is is that we can understand this. We're doing this to worship God, to give him something, not necessarily for us to receive something. Worship is an act of surrender. It's, It's this idea of bowing down. So what about you today? Did your worship today reflect... Heavenly worship. It should. And we should, surrender the Lord, we should surrender the Lord in worship, offering praise to his name and glorifying him. But let's look at another example of his character, Psalm 115. 1. I've already read it to you. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. One commentator asked these questions about this verse. What can we say when God seems to be absent or silent or both? What happens when in the midst of our suffering, God doesn't act in line with our expectations? What do we we have to say to people when we assured them that God is real and he'll provide, but the evidence doesn't seem to back up that claim? This is the context of Psalm 115. It's addressing these kind of questions. And in verse 2, the Gentile nation, they're asking this, where is their God? And the psalmist is praying and he's praying this prayer, he's calling upon God to show up and to show out because of his character, his steadfast love, his mercy, and his faithfulness, the truth of who he is. The psalmist believed and expected God to keep his covenant and to be true to his promises to his people as he delivered them even from these mocking Gentiles. And listen, I don't, I don't know the circumstances of your life. I, 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 I know maybe some of them. I don't know all of them. But here's what I can say is this. If you come into this room and your faith is only built upon the circumstances of your life, then that's going to be a roller coaster all the time. But if your faith is in Jesus Christ, no matter your circumstances, when you come into worship, you can raise your hand. You can sing as loud as you can because you trust in a God who is glorious and wonderful and majestic and all-power and all-knowing. And he will take even the worst parts of your life and make them into something good. This is who Jesus is, and this is why we glorify him with our worship. We also glorify him because of his words and works. Listen, I I probably had 50 scriptures I could have done this. I just chose two. And I don't know why I chose these two. I just picked two out of the list. Because all throughout the scriptures are God's mighty hand at work and his word being fulfilled in front of us. But how about Luke 2.20? And the shepherds returned after seeing Jesus lying in the manger, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Listen, they had heard of Jesus' birth. Jesus told them the Messiah was coming. They had heard about the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus reveals, or God reveals to them that Jesus has arrived. They go up to the manger scene, and when they get to the manger scene, they see God's faithful hand at work lying in a manger. And what was their response? Glorifying and praising God. Or what about Matthew 15, 31? Jesus, in his public ministry, goes to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, predominantly a Gentile area, and as he arrives there, the the text tells us this. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and what did they do? Now, these are Gentile people. What did they do? They glorified the God of Israel. Once again, God's words and works move people to glorify God through worship. And then finally, we we worship and glorify him through our worship because of his love and grace. Psalm 63.3 says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. To be loved by God is better than life. To think that a holy God knows you by name, meets you where you are and extends his love to you through the, through the sacrifice of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. To know that kind of love, church, to know that kind of love is better than life. And if you need any other reason to sing and worship and to bow down in prayer before the Lord and worship, if you need any other reason than this, it's this. You are loved by God and that love is better than life. Actually, that love is the beginning of your life. When you receive that love by placing your faith and trust in Jesus, you get life, eternal life that lasts forever. And this is why we worship. And finally, we glorify God with our lives. We glorify God with our lives first by being a living sacrifice. Romans 12.1, the New Testament gives a lot of different ways of how we can glorify God with our lives, and I just picked out a few of them. In fact, when I first wrote this sermon, it was 55 minutes long. A lot of them were founded in this part here about how do we worship God, how do we glorify God with our lives. Here's the first one, by being a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your spiritual worship. In light of everything that God has done for you, how should you live your life? You should live your life as a living sacrifice. Your whole life is an act of worship of God. Why? In view of God's mercy. The mercy of God, the mercy of God is the only thing that could save a sinner like you and me. The mercy of God is the only thing that could rescue us and redeem us from being dead in our trespasses and sins. And when we understand that and we receive God's mercy in our life and place our faith and trust in Jesus, listen, when we experience that in view of God's mercy, we give our lives in full obedience to him in an act of worship. God is not asking you to donate or dedicate something to him. He doesn't need the things that you have. He already has them. Oswald Chambers says, we have this idea that we can dedicate our gifts to God. However, you cannot dedicate what is not yours. There is only one thing you can do to dedicate your life to God, and that is the right to yourself. If you will give God your right to yourself, he will make a holy experiment out of you, and his experiments always succeed. The one true mark of a saint of God is the inner creativity that flows from being totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. As believers, we're to be wholly consecrated, fully committed in every, every area of life. This is the true death to self. And listen, God is worthy of our worship through song. He's worthy of our worship when we gather together in this place. But, but most importantly, he is worthy of your individual life being given every day as a living sacrifice. We also glorify God by the way through our lives by remaining pure. 1 Corinthians 6 Eighteen through twenty says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. How do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul's addressing sexual sin here because it's a sin against your own body. And it's in context that Christians belong to Christ. Their bodies belong to Christ. And so he's talking about our physical bodies. And listen, our physical bodies are going to be used as instruments of good or instruments of evil. And as believers, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit resides in us, which makes our body a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's telling these Corinthians, you're not on on your own anymore. Why? Because Christ Jesus paid for your life with his blood. And when you place your faith and trust in him and his blood covers you, you no longer have the right to use your body however you want to. Because before Jesus, we were self centered, self indulging, my body, what I want to do, these things. But listen, when we belong to Jesus, our bodies are to be used for his service. And Christ paid for your life with his blood. And since he purchased you with his blood, it should move us to be obedient. And it's not about what we abstain from as Christians. I mean, we, sometimes us Christians are known for all the things we don't do. But how about being known for all the things that we embrace? Like I want to use my physical body however I can, just the way that God commanded me, and I wanna, and I wanna, and I don't want to do the things that God's prohibited me to do. Think about all the time and energy given to. When you're you're giving in to your selfish desires and wants, let's just talk about sexual immorality for just a second. Think about all the time and energy it takes to be involved in sexual immorality. Maybe hiding things and covering up things and trying to make sure that you don't get caught in your activities. Think about all that time and energy invested in giving yourself to, to sexual immorality that if you turn that and use your body as a believer for God's glory... What could be accomplished through you in the kingdom of God? We also glorify God through our lives by seeking the good of others. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Listen, sometimes people speak all of life as worship, and like going to work is worship, playing basketball or football is worship, practicing the piano as worship. And listen, we need, to, we need to honor God in all that we do in life. If the chief end of man is to glorify God, then this should be our primary focus. You football players, you step foot on a football field. It's not just about your reputation as a player. and It's not just about your success as a player. It's much more than that. Your job is to glorify God. And if we live with this mindset, as Paul is alluding here, that all of your life, everything you do should be done for the glory of God, And as you do it for the glory of God, you seek the good of other people. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 31 through through the first verse of chapter 11, John Stite highlights these five rules that Paul gives as we live life together. The first is this. Do it all for the glory of God, not to establish your freedom. Try to please men in everything, not to claim your rights. Seek the advantages of many, many, not your benefit. Seek that many might be saved. Don't become preoccupied with your own salvation. And finally, be imitators of Christ, not your reputation. Being free from ourselves to glorify God by being like Christ. This is what we're called to do. And when we do this, we'll seek the good of other people because the things of God will be inside of us and we will care about other people, which takes us to the final thing by keeping a good reputation. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, Gentiles in this text, referring to unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Listen, conduct here refers to day-to-day pattern of your life. Good deeds being done. And it is important that believers maintain a good reputation through their conduct in front of, these un, uh, in front of unbelievers. Why? Because the life that wins the critic to Jesus is the life that when they see your good works, they can only glorify God who is in heaven. If you as a believer keep a good reputation, you push back unbelievers' complaints against you. In fact, your Christian conduct causes them to reconsider, as Matthew 5.16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Church, this is a command from the Lord Jesus, not a suggestion. The light inside of us does not shine on ourself. It rather reflects the light of a holy God. And it is the will of believers to live in such a way to make God visible in the world that is blind to him. Why, why do we do these good works? Why do we keep a good reputation? It is so that others might glorify God who is in heaven. It is the words of Psalm 115, 1 all over again. Not to us, not to us, but to your name we give glory. May this be the prayer of our individual lives and in our church. Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Ion Keith Faulkner was a Scottish missionary. 22 years old, he won the World Cycling Championship. And after he won that championship, he left it all behind to go be a missionary in Egypt to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. He married his wife on the mission field, and three years after they were married, at the age of 31, he died of malaria. Robert Sinker wrote this at the beginning of his biography. A career of exceptional promise was closed early in, in, the de- in his death. The beauty of his character, his ardent missionary zeal, his great learning formed a combination rarely equaled. How noble a life was his. And then the question was asked, what was in this man that would cause him to give all for the glory of King Jesus and the lost among the nations? I'll tell you what it was. It was a conviction buried deep in his heart, and these were his own words. I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. As it was true for I and Kevin Faulkner, may it be true of us. Will you glorify God by your faith and in your worship and through your life? And will you let the light of Jesus shine through you so that others may see your Father in heaven and glorify him?